Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and this special tribute to one of our most beloved World War II correspondents, Ernie Pyle. This episode is classic nonfiction and represents an incredible historical volume of work by a beloved war correspondent who made the final sacrifice on the front in 1944. Since World War II affected nearly every country on Earth, Ernie Pyle's message of men at war and the families they left behind is a universal one. We hope you gain new insight from this important piece of history. It has been 76 years since Ernie Pyle, on duty as a war correspondent on Okinawa, fell prey to a Japanese sniper, thus robbing the free world of a true hero and friend to all those who were caught up in the worldwide conflagration brought upon us by a crazed German dictator and a megalomaniac Japanese emperor and his war-minded military leaders who were convinced that they were created to rule the earth and committed their armed forces and many of their people to certain death. Ernie Pyle's newspaper columns brought the names and assurances back from the front to the hometowns of America during a time when information about what was going on overseas was almost impossible to get. He witnessed the terrible German bombings of London, the deadly tank battles in North Africa, the liberation of Europe, the often mundane lives of soldiers and sailors in camps and on board ships between moments of intense action, and the desperate struggle by Marines to gain island footholds in the Pacific Islands, which would bring us within bombing range of Japan, the only solution left to bring an end to a long and brutal war in the Pacific. In this episode, we remember and honor Ernie Pyle and the brave men with whom he served, who gave us our freedom. Listening to his stories will give you a unique insight into what life and death on the front during World War II was really like, from the mundane life of the sailors and soldiers and Marines as they existed from day to day, to the terrible moments when they faced their worst fears. His stories also bring to light the sacrifices of families who waited at home for news, any kind of news, from the front. And now, the death of Captain Waslow and other stories by Ernie Pyle. At the front lines in Italy, January 10th, 1944. In this war, I've known a lot of officers who were loved and respected by the soldiers under them but never have I crossed the trail of any man as beloved as Captain Henry T. Waskow of Belton, Texas. Captain Waskow was a company commander in the 36th Division. He had led his company since long before it left the States. He was very young, only in his middle 20s, but he carried sincerity and gentleness that made people want to be guided by him. After my own father, he came next a sergeant told me. He always looked after us, a soldier said. He'd go to bat for us every time. I'd never known him to do anything unfair, another one said. I was at the foot of the mule trail the night they brought Captain Wasco's body down. The moon was nearly full at the time, and you could see far up the trail, and even partway across the valley below. Soldiers made shadows in the moonlight as they walked. Dead men had been coming down the mountain all evening, lashed onto the backs of mules. 
They came lying belly down across the wooden pack saddles, their heads hanging down on the left side of the mule, their stiffened legs sticking out awkwardly from the other side, bobbing up and down as the mule walked. The Italian mule skinners were afraid to walk beside dead men, so Americans had to lead the mules down that night. Even the Americans were reluctant to unlash and lift off the bodies at the bottom, so an officer had to do it himself and ask others to help. The first one came early in the morning. They slid him down from the mule and stood him on his feet for a moment until they got a new grip. In the half-light, he might have been merely a sick man standing there, leaning on the others. Then they laid him on the ground in the shadow of a low stone wall alongside the road. I don't know who that first one was. You feel small in the presence of dead men, and ashamed at being alive, and you don't ask silly questions. We left him there beside the road, that first one, and we all went back into the cow shed and sat on water cans or lay on the straw, waiting for the next batch of mules. Somebody said the dead soldier had been dead for four days, and then nobody said anything more about it. We talked soldier talk for an hour or more. The dead man lay all alone outside in the shadow of the low stone wall. Then a soldier came into the cow shed and said there were some more bodies outside. We went out into the road. Four mules stood there in the moonlight in the road where the trail came down off the mountain. The soldiers who led them stood there waiting. This one is Captain Waskow. "'one of them said quietly. Two men unlashed his body from the mule "'and lifted it off "'and laid it in the shadow "'beside the low stone wall. "'Other men took the other bodies off. "'Finally there were five lying end to end "'in a long row alongside the road. "'You don't cover up dead men in the combat zone. "'They just lie there in the shadows "'until somebody else comes after them. "'The unburdened mules moved off to their olive orchard.' The men in the road seemed reluctant to leave. They stood around, and gradually, one by one, I could sense them moving close to Captain Waskow's body. Not so much to look, I think, as to say something in finality to him and to themselves. I stood close by, and I could hear. One soldier came and looked down, and he said out loud, God damn it. That's all he said. And then he walked away. Another one came. He said, God damn it to hell anyway. He looked down for a few last moments. And then he turned and left. Another man came. I think he was an officer. It was hard to tell officers from men in the half light. For all were bearded and grimy dirty. The man looked down into the dead captain's face, and then he spoke directly to him as though he were alive. He said, I'm sorry, old man. Then a soldier came and stood beside the officer and bent over, and he too spoke to his dead captain, not in a whisper, but awfully tenderly, and he said, I sure am sorry, sir. Then the first man squatted down and he reached down and took the dead hand, and he sat there for a full five minutes, 
holding the dead hand in his own, and looking intently into the dead face, and he never uttered a sound all the time that he sat there. And finally he put the hand down, and then reached up and gently straightened the points of the captain's shirt collar. And then he sort of rearranged the tattered edges of his uniform around the wound. And then he got up and walked away down the road in the moonlight, all alone. After that, the rest of us went back into the cowshed, leaving the five dead men lying in line, end to end, in the shadow of the low stone wall. We lay down on the straw in the cowshed, and pretty soon we were all asleep. We'll rejoin this episode right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. The next story, a dreadful masterpiece, written December 30th, 1940, during the German bombing of London. Someday, someday when peace is returned to this odd world, I want to come to London again and stand on a certain balcony on a moonlit night and look down upon the peaceful silver curve of the Thames with its dark bridges. And standing there, I want to tell somebody who has never seen it how London looked on a certain night in the holiday season of the year 1940. For on that night, this old, old city, even though I must bite my tongue in shame for saying it, was the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. It was a night when London was ringed and stabbed with fire. They came just after dark, and somehow I could sense from the quick, bitter firing of the guns that there was to be no monkey business this night. Shortly after the sirens wailed, I could hear the Germans grinding overhead. In my room, with its black curtains drawn across the windows, you could feel the shake from the guns. You could hear the boom, crump, 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 of heavy bombs at their work of tearing buildings apart. They were not too far away. Half an hour after the firing started, I gathered a couple of friends and went to a high, darkened balcony that gave us a view of one-third of the entire circle of London. As we stepped out onto the balcony, a vast inner excitement came over all of us, an excitement that had neither fear nor horror in it, because it was too full of awe. You have all seen big fires, but I doubt if you have ever seen the whole horizon of a city lined with great fires, scores of them, perhaps hundreds. The closest fires were near enough for us to hear the crackling flames and the yells of firemen. Little fires grew into big ones even as we watched. Big ones died down under the firemen's valor, only to break out again later. About every two minutes a new wave of planes would be over. The motor seemed to grind rather than roar, and to have an angry pulsation like a bee buzzing in blind fury. The bombs did not make a constant overwhelming din, as in those terrible days of last September. They were intermittent, sometimes a few seconds apart, sometimes a minute or more. Their sound was sharp when nearby, and soft and muffled, far away. Into the dark, shadowed spaces below us, as we watched, whole batches of incendiary bombs fell. We saw two dozen go off in two seconds. They flashed terrifically, then quickly simmered down to pinpoints of dazzling white, 
burning ferociously. These white pinpoints would go out one by one as the unseen heroes of the moment smothered them with sand. But also, as we watched, other pinpoints would burn on and pretty soon a yellow flame would leap up from the white center. They had done their work. Another building was on fire. The greatest of all the fires was directly in front of us. Flames seemed to whip hundreds of feet into the air. Pinkish-white smoke ballooned up in a great cloud, and out of this cloud there gradually took shape, so faintly at first that we weren't sure we saw correctly, the gigantic dome and spires of St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's was surrounded by fire, but it came through. It stood there in its enormous proportions, growing slowly clearer and clearer the way objects take shape at dawn. It was like a picture of some miraculous figure that appears before peace-hungry soldiers on a battlefield. The streets below us were semi-illuminated from the glow. Immediately above the fires, the sky was red and angry, and overhead, making a ceiling in the vast heavens. There was a cloud of smoke, all in pink. Up in that pink shrouding there were tiny, brilliant specks of flashing light. Anti-aircraft shells bursting. After the flash, you could hear the sound. Up there, too, the barrage balloons were standing out as clearly as if it were daytime. But now they were pink instead of silver. And now and then, through a hole in that pink shroud, there twinkled incongruously a permanent, genuine star. The old-fashioned kind that has always been there. Below us, the Thames grew lighter. And all around below were the shadows, the dark shadows of buildings and bridges that formed the base of this dreadful masterpiece. Later on, I borrowed a tin hat and went out among the fires. That was exciting, too, but the thing I shall always remember above all the other things in my life is the monstrous loveliness of that one single view of London on a holiday night. London stabbed with great fires, shaken by explosions its dark regions along the Thames sparkling with the pinpoints of white-hot bombs, all of it roofed over with a ceiling of pink that held bursting shells, balloons, flares, and the grind of vicious engines. And in yourself, the excitement and anticipation and wonder in your soul that this could be happening at all. These things all went together to make the most hateful, the most beautiful single scene I've ever known. This one from Algiers, December 1, 1942. Killing is all that matters. With the American forces in Algiers, December 1, 1942. From now onward, stretching for months and months into the future, life is completely changed for thousands of American boys on this side of the earth. For at last, they are in their fighting. The jump from camp life into frontline living is just as great as the original jump from civilian life into the army. Only those who served in the last war can conceive of the makeshift, deadly urgent, always moving onward complexion of frontline existence. And existence is exactly the word. It is nothing more. The last of the comforts are gone. From now on you sleep in bedrolls under little tents. You wash whenever and wherever you can. 
You carry your food on your back when you're fighting. You dig ditches for protection from bullets and from the chill north wind off the Mediterranean. There are no more hot water taps. There are no post exchanges where you can buy cigarettes. There are no movies. When you speak to a civilian, you have to wrestle with a foreign language. You carry just enough clothing to cover you and no more. You don't lug any knickknacks at all. When our troops made their first landings in North Africa, they went four days without even blankets, just catching a few hours sleep on the ground. Everybody ever lost or chucked aside some of his equipment. Like most troops going into battle for the first time, they all carried too much at first. Gradually, they shed it. The boys tossed out personal gear from the Muset bags and filled them with ammunition. The countryside for 20 miles around Oran was strewn with overcoats, field jackets, and mess kits as the soldiers moved on the city. Arabs will be going around for a whole generation clad in odd pieces of American army uniforms. At the moment, our troops are bivouacked for miles around each of three large centers of occupation, Casablanca, Oran, and Algiers. They are consolidating, fitting in replacements, making repairs, spending a few days taking a deep breath before moving on to other theaters of action. They're camped in every conceivable way. In the city of Oran, some are billeted in office buildings, hotels, and garages. Some are camping in parks and big vacant lots on the edge of town. Some are miles away, out in the country, living on treeless stretches of prairie. They're in tiny groups and in huge batches. Some of the officers live in tents and sleep on the ground. Others have been lucky enough to commandeer a farmhouse or a barn, sometimes even a modern villa. The tent camps look odd. The little low tents hold two men apiece and stretch as far as you can see. There are Negro camps as well as white. You see men washing mess kits and clothing in five-gallon gasoline cans, heated over an open fire made from sticks and pieces of packing cases. They strip naked and take sponge baths in the heat of the day. In the quick cold of night, they cuddle up in their bedrolls. You see Negroes playing baseball under the bright African sun during their spare hours of an afternoon. The American soldier is quick in adapting himself to a new mode of living. Outfits which have been here only three days have dug vast networks of ditches three feet deep in the bare brown earth. They've rigged up a light here and there with a storage battery. They've gathered boards and made floors and sideboards for their tents to keep out the wind and sand. They've hung out their washing and painted their names over the tent flaps. You even see a soldier sitting on his front step of an evening playing a violin. They've been here only three days, and they know they're unlikely to be here three days more. But they patch up some kind of home nevertheless. Even in this short waiting period, life is far from static. Motor convoys roar along the highways. Everything's on a basis of not a minute to spare. There's a new spirit among the troops, a spirit of haste. Planes pass constantly, eastbound. New detachments of troops wait for orders to move on. Old detachments tell you the stories of their first battle and conjecture about the next one. 
People you've only recently met hand you slips of paper with their home addresses and say, you know, in case something happens, would you mind writing? At last we are in it up to our necks, and everything is changed, even your outlook on life. Swinging first and swinging to kill is all that matters now. The town as a whole has been turned back to the French, but the army keeps a hand raised, and there will be no miscues. We'll rejoin this episode right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. In this column, Pyle emphasizes that the service people in the war are ordinary folks, not career military folks. Those same service people especially enjoyed this type of column because it showed that ordinary people could also be heroes. Fighter Pilot A forward airdrome in French North Africa, February 10, 1943 Lieutenant Jack Ilfrey is the leading American ace in North Africa at this moment. However, that's not my reason for writing about him. In the first place, the theory over here is not to become an individual fighter and shoot down a lot of planes, so being an ace doesn't mean so much. In the second place, somebody else might be ahead of Ilfrey by this evening, with fate pulling the strings the way she does. So I'm writing about him largely because he's a fine person, and more or less typical of all boys who fly our deadly fighters. Jack Ilfrey is from Houston. His father is cashier of the First National Bank. Jack is only 22. He has two younger sisters. He went to Texas A&M for two years and then to the University of Houston, working at the same time for the Hughes Tool Company. He will soon have been in the Army for two years. It's hard to conceive of his ever having killed anybody, for he looks even younger than his 22 years. His face is good-humored, his darkish hair is childlessly uncontrollable, and pops up into a little curly cue at the front of his head. He talks fast, but his voice is soft, and he has a very slight hesitation in his speech that somehow seems to make him a gentle and harmless person. There is not the least trace of the smart aleck or wise guy about him. He is wholly thoughtful and sincere, and yet he mows them down. Here in Africa, Ilfrey's been through the mill, he got two Falkwoof 190s in one day, two Messerschmitt 109s another day. His fifth victory was over a twin-motored Messerschmitt 110, which carries three men. And he has another kill that has not yet been confirmed. He hasn't had all smooth sailing by any means. In fact, he's very lucky to be here at all. He got caught in a trap one day and came home with 260 bullet holes in his plane. His armor plate stopped at least a dozen that would have killed him. Jack's closest shave, however, wasn't from being shot at. It happened one day when he saw a German fighter duck into a cloud. Jack figured the German would emerge at the far end of the cloud, so he scooted along below to where he thought the German would pop out. And pop out he did, right smack into him, almost. They both kicked Rudder violently, and they missed practically by inches. Neither man fired a shot. They were so busy getting out of each other's way. Jack says he was weak for an hour afterward. 
There's nothing heroic about Lieutenant Ilfrey. He isn't afraid to run when that's the only thing there is to do. He was telling about getting caught all alone one day at a low altitude. Two Germans got on his tail. I just had two chances, he says. Either stay and fight and almost surely get shot down or pour on everything I had to try to get away. I ran a chance of burning up my engines and having to land in enemy territory, but I got away. And luckily, my engines stood up. Ilfrey, like all the others here, has little in the way of entertainment and personal pleasure. I walked into his room late one afternoon, after he'd come back from a mission, and found him sitting there at a table, all alone, killing flies, with a folded newspaper. And yet they say being an ace is romantic. And this story, no area is immune. With the Allied Beachhead Forces in Italy, March 28, 1944. When you get to Anzio, you waste no time getting off the boat, for you've been feeling pretty much like a clay pigeon in a shooting gallery. But after a few hours in Anzio, you wish you were back on the boat, for you could hardly describe being ashore as a haven of peacefulness. As we came into the harbor, shells skipped the water within a hundred yards of us. In our first day ashore, a bomb exploded so close to the place where I was sitting that it almost knocked us down with fright. It smacked into the trees a short distance away. And on the third day ashore, an 88 went off within 20 yards of us. I wished I was in New York. When I write about my own occasional association with shells and bombs, there's one thing I want you folks at home to be sure to get straight. And that is that the other correspondents are in the same boat, many of them much more so. You know about my own small experiences, because it's my job to write about how these things sound and feel. But you don't know what the other reporters go through because it usually isn't their job to write about themselves. There are correspondents here on the beachhead, and on the casino front also, who have had dozens of close shaves. I know of one correspondent who was knocked down four times by near misses on his first day here. Two correspondents, Reynolds Packer of the UP and Homer Biggert of the New York Herald Tribune, have been on the beachhead since D-Day without a moment's respite. They've become so veteran that they don't even mention a shell striking 20 yards away. On this beachhead, every inch of our territory is under German artillery fire. There is no rear area that is immune, as in most battle zones. They can reach us with their 88s, and they use everything from that on up. I don't mean to suggest that they keep every foot of our territory drenched with shells all the time, for they certainly don't. They are short of ammunition, for one thing but they can reach us, and you never know where they'll shoot next. You're just as liable to get hit standing in the doorway of the villa where you sleep at night as you are in a command post five miles out in the field. Some days they shell us hard, and some day hours will go by without a single shell coming over. Yet nobody is wholly safe, and anybody who says he's been around Anzio two days without ever having a shell hit within a hundred yards of him is just bragging. People who know the sounds of warfare intimately are puzzled and irritated by the sounds up here. For some reason, you can't tell anything about anything. 
The Germans shoot shells of half a dozen sizes, each of which makes a different sound of explosion. You can't gauge distance at all. One shell may land within your block and sound not much louder than a shotgun. Another landing a quarter mile away makes the earth tremble as if in an earthquake and starts your heart to pounding. You can't gauge direction either. The 88 that hit within 20 yards of us didn't make so much noise. I would have sworn it was 200 yards away and in the opposite direction. Sometimes you hear them coming and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you hear the shell whine after you've heard it explode. Sometimes you hear it whine and it never explodes. Sometimes the house trembles and shakes and you hear no explosions at all. But I found out one thing here that's just the same as anywhere else. And that's that old weakness in the joints when they get the landing close. I've been weak all over Tunisia and Sicily and in parts of Italy. And I get weaker than ever up here. When the German raiders come over at night and the sky lights a bright as day with flares and ACAC guns set up turmoil and pretty soon you hear and feel that terrible power of exploding bombs. Well, your elbows get flabby and you breathe in little short jerks and your chest feels empty and you're too excited to do anything but hope. This column, Liberating the City of Light, Paris, August 28, 1944. I had thought that for me there could never again be any elation in war. But I had reckoned without the liberation of Paris. I had reckoned without remembering that I might be part of this richly historic day. We are in Paris on the first day, one of the great days of all time. This is being written, as other correspondents are writing their pieces, under an emotional tension, a pent-up semi-delirium. Our approach to Paris was hectic. We had waited for three days in a nearby town while hourly our reports on what was going on in Paris changed and contradicted themselves. Of a morning it would look as though we were about to break through the German ring around Paris and come to the aid of the brave French forces of the interior who were holding parts of the city. By afternoon it would seem that the enemy had reinforced until another Stalingrad was developing. We couldn't bear to think of the destruction of Paris and yet at times it seemed desperately inevitable. That was the situation this morning when we left Ramboulet and decided to feel our way timidly toward the very outskirts of Paris. And then, when we were within about eight miles, rumors began to circulate that the French 2nd Armored Division was in the city. We argued for half an hour at a crossroads with the French captain who was holding us up, and finally he freed us and waved us on. For 15 minutes we drove through a flat garden-like country under a magnificent bright sun and amidst greenery, with distant banks of smoke pillaring the horizon ahead and to our left. And then we came gradually into the suburbs and soon into Paris itself and a pandemonium of surely the greatest mass joy that has ever happened. The streets were lined as by the 4th of July parade crowds at home. Only this crowd was almost hysterical. The streets of Paris are very wide, and they were packed on each side. The women were all brightly dressed in white or red blouses and colorful peasant skirts with flowers in their hair and big flashy earrings. Everybody was throwing flowers, and even serpentine. As our jeep eased through the crowds, 
Thousands of people crowded up, leaving only a narrow corridor. And frantic men, women, and children grabbed us and kissed us and shook our hands and beat on our shoulders and slapped our backs and shouted their joy as we passed. I was in a jeep with Henry Gorell of the United Press, Captain Carl Pergler of Washington, D.C., and Corporal Alexander Balon of Amherst, Massachusetts. We all got kissed until we were literally red in the face. And I must say, we enjoyed it. Once when the jeep was simply swamped in human traffic and had to stop, we were swarmed over and hugged and kissed and torn at. Everybody, even beautiful girls, insisted on kissing you on both cheeks. Somehow I got started kissing babies that were held up by their parents. And for a while I looked like a baby-kissing politician going down the street. The fact that I hadn't shaved for days and was gray-bearded as well as bald-headed made no difference. Once when we came to a stop, some Frenchmen told us there were still snipers shooting, so we put our steel helmets back on. The people certainly looked well-fed and well-dressed. The streets were lined with green trees and modern buildings. All the stores were closed in holiday. Bicycles were so thick, I have an idea there have been plenty of accidents today with tanks and jeeps overrunning the populace. We entered Paris via Rue Aristide Briand and Rue d'Orleans. We were slightly apprehensive, but I said it was all right to keep going as long as there were crowds. But finally we were stymied by the people in the streets, and then above the din we heard some not-too-distant explosions, the Germans trying to destroy bridges across the Seine. And then the rattling of machine guns up the street, and that old battlefield whine of high-velocity shells just overhead. Some of us veterans ducked, but the Parisians just laughed and continued to carry on. There came running over to our jeep a tall, thin, happy woman in a light brown dress who spoke perfect American. She was Mrs. Helen Cardin, who lived in Paris for 21 years and has not been home to America since 1935. Her husband is an officer in French Army headquarters and home now after two and a half years as a German prisoner. He was with her in civilian clothes. Mrs. Cardin has a sister, Mrs. George Swikart of New York, and I can say here to our relatives in America that she is well and happy. Incidentally, her two children, Edgar and Peter, are the only two American children, she says, who have been in Paris throughout the entire war. We entered Paris from due south, and the Germans were still battling in the heart of the city, along the Seine, when we arrived. But they were doomed. There was a full French armored division in the city, plus American troops entering constantly. The farthest we got in our first hour in Paris was near the Senate building, where some Germans were holed up and firing desperately. So we took a hotel room nearby and decided to write while the others fought. By the time you read this, I'm sure Paris will once again be free for Frenchmen, and I'll be out all over town getting my bald head kissed. Of all the days of national joy I've ever witnessed, this is the biggest. Thanks for joining us for this special episode featuring the World War II columns of Ernie Pyle, a tremendous hero and a friend to U.S. fighting men everywhere. Rest in peace, Ernie. Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll be back next Sunday night with brand new episodes. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.